available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Welcome to Outlook. I'm Peter Walters, and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday, the 30th of August, 2023. Coming up in this week's programme, we meet a man with a passion for poultry. We're at the World Blind Games in Birmingham, and hearing the heartwarming story of getting a guide dog at the age of 78. Plus, hurdy-gurdy days, another piece about the wonderful Charterhouse in Coventry sport, news from the Resource Centre, and the answers to last week's quiz. But before all that, here's this week's news with myself and Elaine. Outlook News. There was an increased police presence right across the city on August the 25th as part of a major crackdown on crimes known to plague communities. Operation Advance, billed as a 24-hour intensive policing operation, involved staff and officers from every policing department across Coventry. West Midlands police officers searched addresses, executing warrants, getting involved in local issues and dealing with crimes and antisocial behaviour. A Coventry Police spokesperson said, We're tackling issues which matter to you through a dynamic and highly visible operation which takes, took place in Coventry. We are carrying out a range of activity over a 24-hour period to address some of the issues which we know impact upon our communities. Local officers executed a warrant in Tile Hill that morning with assistance from other local police area officers. Chief Superintendent Pete Henrick led the operation as commander of the Coventry LPA. He says the initiative will enable the West Midlands Police to draw resources in from across the force to focus on policing across Coventry. The operation has already been successfully run in Birmingham and Wolverhampton and we're pleased to be doing similar in Coventry, Chief Superintendent Henrick said. We had the support of specialist departments like the Drones Team, Roads Policing and Dog Unit, alongside some of our existing teams for concentrated activity. A lot was going on, from enforcement and education, to assisting in dealing with a range of issues from serious youth crime, keeping the roads safe and preventing antisocial behaviour. We know a lot of this can't be done alone which is why working with partners such as the council, community volunteers, police cadets and street watch is crucial to what we do. Operation Advance builds on the more targeted approach to local policing West Midlands Police implemented, following a major restructure in April. Much of today's policing activity in Coventry will be logged on the Operation Advance webpage. A trade union is calling for urgent action over alleged pay discrimination at Coventry City Council. The staff there say they're struggling to pay the bills. Delays by the council in ending unequal pay are making cost of living pressures faced by workers worse, the GMB claimed on August 23rd. It comes months after the union announced a dispute with the council over how roles carried out mainly by women are valued and paid. 
Since then, 150 equal pay claims by GMB members have been lodged with the council as part of a row. Hundreds of council workers now say the authority needs to do more to tackle the alleged pay discrimination, according to a new poll of GMB members there. Almost all those surveyed by the union said they feel worse off compared to a year ago, and about a fifth said they or the people they lived with have had to use food banks. GMB organiser Michelle McCrossan said these figures are a shocking reminder that delay on ending pay discrimination in Coventry is not an option. Our members reported that pay discrimination is fueling an already difficult situation, she added. Many told us that they were unable to make ends meet week on week and have difficulties paying their rent, mortgages and household bills. They also told us that ending pay discrimination would mean they could afford to send a child to university, get on the housing ladder or even just buy decent food for their families. The time has come to see action, end the pay discrimination and give women workers what they're owed, she added. A Coventry City Council spokesperson said... We're committed to ensuring fairness for all council employees. We are absolutely aware of how tough the economic conditions are for some people right now. Illegal e-bikes have been seized during a swoop in Coventry City Centre. St Michael's neighbourhood officers carried out the sting against riders who plague the city centre. They seized three illegal bikes one of which was almost three times over the maximum wattage output allowed of 250 watts. Tackling nuisance electric bike riders has been the focus of a number of police campaigns. This is down to the number of complaints, including how a business group told councillors that incidents such as these are putting people off visiting the city centre. Back in May, another operation was staged with a warning has been issued that prosecutions could be made against those who flout the rules. Nuisance e-bikes are covered by a public space protection order that is in place. It was renewed last month after being backed by Police Sergeant Dean Stew, Coventry LPA lead for off-ride bike crime and antisocial behaviour. He previously said... We are happy to support the Council in renewing this PSPO. We are listening to the community concerns in the area and know how much of an issue the anti-social use e-bikers can be. This PSPO, which also covers street trading, busking and begging, says people must cycle in a careful and considerate manner through the centre and dismount when officers tell them to. Cyclists who are caught not doing this can be handed a breach notice and could face a £100 fine or court summons. The annual Heritage Open Days will be taking place in Coventry from Friday the 8th of September to Sunday the 17th of September. Once again, many venues that are not, not usually accessible to the public will be opening their doors to visitors for free. More than 50 venues will be taking part in the 10-day national event, with castles, churches, cemeteries and museums included in this year's offer. Some venues will also be holding free activities, tours and talks for visitors to enjoy. New to Heritage Open Days for 2023 in Coventry is Charterhouse. The former Carthusian monastery opened earlier in the year following its restoration, and visitors will be able to take part in a guided tour to learn about the building's history. 
The wider heritage parkland is set to come alive on Sunday the 10th of September as a free family festival takes place as part of Cov's big bike ride. Those taking part in the bike ride can cycle from Broadgate to Charterhouse and see heritage venues along the route. Other new venues include Daimler Powerhouse, which is home to a number of the city's artists and creatives, the Modern Records Centre at University of Warwick and Bonds Hospital Almshouse. Musical performances will also be held at the newly rebuilt Coventry Cross. Councillor Abdul Salam Khan, Deputy Leader of Coventry City Council and Cabinet Member for Events, said, We're always proud to take part in Heritage Open Days, which is another free event for our city to enjoy. This year we have more venues than ever that are open for residents and visitors to explore. There really is something on offer for people of all ages and interests. Not only do we have our city city centre attractions open to visitors for this year's event, we also have many community venues taking part too. Some of these venues do not open to visitors often, so I encourage those interested to make the most of this event and explore the city's finest heritage buildings. Other city centre venues included in this year's event are Draper's Hall, which will be open for walking tours with Coventry Society, the Litchgate Cottages at 3 to 5 Priory Row, where visitors can see how the timber frame properties have been restored and transformed into visitor accommodation, and the popular St Mary's Guildhall. Many of the city's churches will be open, including Holy Trinity, which houses the famed Doom Painting, as well as St John the Baptist Church in Fleet Street with its wealth of history and stunning interior. Coventry's Greek Orthodox Church in Westwood Heath will also be open for visitors. Heritage Open Day's brochures will be available to collect from participating venues from Wednesday the 30th of August. All event information can also be viewed on the Coventry City Council Mm -hmm. website. Councillors are set to approve a £2.8 million homes upgrade grant to help improve energy efficiency in 150 homes in Coventry. A report will be considered by Coventry City Council's Cabinet on Tuesday the 29th of August, seeking approval from councillors to accept the £2.8 million to refit energy efficiency measures for low-income households and those with low energy performance certificate ratings and no gas central heating within Coventry. This grant will build on work already underway to improve the energy efficiency of over 2,500 homes in the city, covering properties across the city in areas including St Michael's, Binley, Willenhall, Foleshill, Longford and Henley. Fuel poverty is a significant problem for some Coventry households, with many low-income and vulnerable people affected. The latest statistic in 2021 indicated that 20.8% of all households are fuel poor and consequently are unable to afford to stay warm in their homes. Councillor Jim O'Boyle, Cabinet Member for Jobs, Regeneration and Climate Change, said, This is an important project which will support our most vulnerable residents, including many who live in flats without mains gas. This grant will help us to boost the energy efficiency of homes by changing the windows, improving insulation and upgrading heating systems. This will help to cut carbon emissions, tackle climate change and crucially to help reduce fuel poverty. 
It is really important work and I wish we could do more of it. So we will be applying pressure to government to help support this work <coughs> along with a number of other measures. Work has begun to build a community-led blossom garden and play space at Charterhouse Heritage Park. The Blossom Together project is being created by the National Trust and Historic Coventry Trust. The space is set to open in spring 2024 with a festival celebrating our connection to nature. Blossom trees will be planted in the autumn by local schools, members of the community and the Historic Coventry Trust volunteer nature team. Lucy Brandt, Experience and Visitor Programming Manager from the National Trust, said the project aims to create a place where the local community can connect with nature and enjoy the seasonal delights of blossoming trees. There will also be a small but meaningful natural play space for families and children. Two mounds that will form a grassy amphitheatre in the play space have been created during the landscaping works earlier this month. To allow the grass to grow, the area will be cordoned off until later in September. We'll also be planting plenty of wildflowers to attract wildlife, including bees and other pollinators, to the area. The project is being funded using money from the People's Postcode Lottery. It will allow the local community to have to have gained more access to nature through the creation of a new green space. In total, 20 blossom trees will be planted in October. Sarah Allen, Education Engagement Manager at Historic Coventry Trust, said, By working with the National Trust to create a space which encourages children to play and explore, we hope more families and children will find a deeper connection with nature whilst visiting Charterhouse Heritage Park. The Blossom Garden will become a well-used and much-loved space for people living and working in the area. Residents say they are fed up as public property continues to be defaced in Coventry. Graffiti has appeared on walls, hoardings and power boxes in Walsgrave. Tags can be seen on Farber Road, Braid Drive and Manfield Avenue. Steve and Fanta are among the words scrawled with the level of vand vandalism becoming much worse. A frustrated resident described the vandalism as an eyesore. Her young children also condemned the huge scrawls which have now been reported to Coventry City Council. A woman who wished to remain anonymous said, Graffiti in Walsgrave has become noticeably worse in recent weeks. It is an eyesore and demonstrates no artistic talent whatsoever. It is blatantly antisocial behaviour, and my young children have also noticed it, and I've been asking why people do it when it looks so unattractive, and is such a selfish thing to do. West Midlands Police said, You can report graffiti seen on any public areas such as bins, benches, buildings, subways or monuments to Coventry City Council. If the graffiti is racist or offensive, the local authority will attempt to remove it within 48 hours. If the incident is happening at the time, please call 999. A 90-year-old resident from Coventry, behind a legendary Indian restaurant in Manchester, which is liked by popular celebrities, has helped to bring a new partnership to Coombe Abbey. Gumit Panum, known as Auntie, is the woman responsible for Shimla Pinks, a restaurant enjoyed by celebrities like Robbie Williams and Justin Timberlake, 
and she'll be bringing her cooking to the city venue as part of her latest project. Auntie's, which makes handsome handmade snacks, treats and original sauces created with the aid of Auntie Panam, will bring delicious flavours and tastes to the Abbey Artisan Market, located in the recently reimagined avenue at Coombe. Gourmet's granddaughter Shireen and her husband Gregory founded the business alongside Auntie in 2018 and had initial success selling the sauces to delis and farm shops. The wholesaler, based on Red Lane Industrial Estate in Kilfields, expanded into making Indian snack boxes to sell to members of the public. And now their most popular products, from Indian ketchup, chilli mango sauce and handmade apple crumble samosa, will be available at the Avenue at Coombe. The recipes feature a selection of savoury and sweet samosas inspired by classical Indian cuisine, with Gregory and Shireen bringing new ideas frequently, whilst Auntie's daughter Helen is in charge of sweet creations. The products will also be available to buy at the Abbey's Coffee Hatch, which allows visitors to take drinks and snacks while their children explore the play area. Auntie moved to Coventry in the 1950s and commuted over 200 miles every day from the city to Manchester to help perfect the restaurant's vegetarian recipes and supervise, which she did until her 70s. She also ran a pair of clothes shops on Stony Stanton Road and Walsgrove Road and restaurants in Birmingham. Gregory said the partnership with No Ordinary Hospitality Management at Coob is part of a long-term growth plan for Auntie's and Mrs. Pallon was responsible for all the quality control of the dishes. Auntie has been guiding us all the way on this journey, and we're thrilled to be sharing her recipes with even more people, now thanks to our partnership with No Ordinary Hospitality. This is a fantastic opportunity for us to reach more members of the public and grow our brand, and hopefully for lots more people to try some more of our creations. I know Auntie is really excited about this next step for the business, and it's another chapter to her brilliant culinary legacy. Measures to improve pedestrian crossings, provide a high-quality cycleway, and improve bus service reliability are to be introduced along the Foles Hill Road after a £4.5 million investment. The package will be used to encourage more people to cycle, walk, or take the bus for their journeys, contributing to a greener and better connected city. The measures include a high-quality segregated cycleway along the Foles Hill Road, extending south to the A4053 Ring Road at Junction 9. The scheme will also aim to reduce through traffic using Foles Hill Road and improve bus journeys as part of the all-electric bus city scheme which will see all buses in Coventry become zero emission by 2025. Upgrades to the A444 Blue Ribbon Roundabout will, with new crossings, improve safety for pedestrians and cyclists and allow bus priority to further support public transport. Some measures will be taken to reduce pavement parking in the area to further improve safety. The package is being developed by Coventry City Council in partnership with Transport for West Midlands, which is part of the West Midlands Combined Authority. The £4.5 million funding comes from the City Region Sustainable Transport Grant 
awarded by the Tran- Department for Transport to Transport for West Midlands last year. Comedy Music Museum curator Pete Chambers, BEM, writes, It was a lovely service last week for Coventry's legendary crooner, Vince Hill. I was honoured to be invited as a VIP to the funeral at Henley-on-Thames Town Hall and later to Vince's local pub at Lower Shiplake. The day was intended to celebrate Vince's life and successful career and this was done superbly. As the beautiful wicker coffin entered to the sound of Edelweiss, Claire Grove, funeral celebrant, did a superb job of welcoming us and reading the personal messages and tributes to Vince from his loving family and friends. There were so many familiar faces. Debbie McGee, Carol Decker of Tapau, Anita Harris and DJ Mike Reed. More of Vince's songs followed with a photographic tribute from the family private family album accompanied by Look Around. Then it was a tribute from the Grand Order of Water Rats that Vince was so proud to be part of. All rats stood up and sang a traditional song led by Kaplan Kay. That was very moving. Popular entertainer Anita Harris made a short speech and sang a few bars of Smile. This was followed by some moving video tributes from various showbiz friends, including Sir Tim Rice, Jimmy Cricket and Les Dennis. The coffin left the town hall to the sound of Vince singing the fitting ballad, The Show Is Over. Then it was off to Lower Ship Lake, to Vince's local pub for a lovely buffet and a chance to talk about the man once more, how down to earth he was, his kindness and his wicked sense of humour. Well done the organiser Stephen Munns. Donations can still be made to the Muscular Society and Blind Veterans, two charities dear to Vince's heart, on vince-hill.muchlove.com. Outlook News. Thanks very much to Elaine uh, for doing the news with me. Um, one thing to mention now, the lighting up times at the moment. Sunrise is at 6.14am and sunset at 8pm. Dead. Uh, we're moving on now, and uh, it, next time it's up for Hugh, and news from the Resource Centre. Here's Hugh. Uh, hello, everybody. I haven't got much to say this week. <laughs> it's terrible. I've been working hard. I was away in Germany on, on the holiday, well, it was for a wedding in, uh, at the weekend, so my brain isn't quite back into, uh, into work mode yet, and what with bank holiday and all. Mind you, I did get back uh, on Monday morning before all the air traffic control stuff mm-hmm. went haywire so I count myself a, relief, a, bit, a bit lucky <laughs> yeah. on that front otherwise yeah. it could still be there mm-hmm. yeah. um, right there's not long left to have a go on the raffle uh, our grand summer raffle uh, which for which the top prize is £250 in cash and uh, there's a meat tray as a second prize and loads of other great prizes as well tickets are a pound a pop uh, with you know, we're really pleased with how that's going, but we still could do. I still got tickets to sell. We need to sell more. So if you uh, fancy buying some tickets, uh, you can uh, s- 
pick them up at reception or you can get us to send them to you and we will um, all you need to do then is either fill in uh, your name uh, on the top page of the, of the little stub thing uh, and send those back uh, with some money uh, or even better uh, you can try and sell them to somebody else who can do that and you can collect the money on our behalf and send it in to us uh, which would be grand the draw for that is on the 9th of uh, September, which is a Saturday, I hope, uh, because that is the day that we're also having our um, s- sort of autumn event for the uh, for the charity shop. We're going large in the car park again. I think we're calling it uh, Cool Cooler Nights Hot Deals or something like that. Hot Deals Cooler Nights. Anyway, if that sunrise sunset time it's very noticeable these days mm. that the that i'm having to turn the light on a bit earlier um, in the kitchen when i get home now uh, this is absolutely the very final last call for the theater trip on next wednesday so next wednesday we're going to go and see beryl um uh, by maxine peak at the criterion theater and it's about uh, a, a superstar um well Superstar ought to have been a superstar um, bicycle rider um, who uh, basically got a bit ignored. I've no people who are involved in the production. Um, I, it's going to be really quite exciting. There's four people playing lots and lots of parts, so it'll be quite uh, uh, quite amazing. Carl, who uh, many of you will know, is uh, helping us out with the minibuses a lot at the moment. Uh, he's involved in the lighting there, and he's got oodles and oodles of lighting cues so it should be you know, so there's a lot going on anyway so we're going to go and see that so if you want to come and see that the tickets are £12.50 uh, you need to phone up now and uh, give your name to Heather well actually or Carol and get them to uh, put your name down on the list uh, we'll do a touch tour at 5 o'clock in the afternoon Come back up here for fish and chips, which you pay separately for, and then we'll go down uh, to the theatre for uh, before 7:30. Uh, settle ourselves in and uh, watch a very good show. And I know there's going to be really good people in that show, or there are really good people in that show, so it should be good. Um, holiday season is still upon us. Uh, we're very pleased that uh, Kudi will be back with us uh, from next week, but then Heather is going to be off uh, for a week or next week. Uh, and then from next Friday, uh, Joe is going to be off for... Um, I think she's off only next Friday and then she's got another week back here or a few days back here and then she's off for another 10 days. So bear with us if we're not quite up to speed with everything. Everybody's got to have their time off. Um, So... uh, uh, so yeah that's it so honestly I, um, uh, classes continue uh, activities continue um, uh, hopefully I've talked to this, about this before about people using the on demand service a bit more I'm not sure how many people are a few people are if you uh, are getting a bit frustrated with us not being able to get to you quite as soon as we need to or that you're spending a bit too long on the bus uh, and you feel able to then do try the on-demand service um, we will um, give you all the information you need on that um, if you uh, if you want it uh, so you just call the centre on 024 and we will do our best to help you and that dear friends is it <laughs> thank you Hugh um, so the message is if you haven't bought tickets for the draw, get out there and do so. Get yeah, very go, quickly. Yeah, get buy those buy those raffle tickets because uh, 
it's a good it's a good September the 1st it's a yeah a couple of days time from now it's going to be September the 1st and that's it nine days you know thanks so much Hugh thank you and now with her sports report here's Sarah Outlook Sport Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome to your weekly intake of sport. I'll start off with the local results, mostly from the weekend. The mighty Coventry City entertained Sunderland. Now, I'd often wondered why there was a particular rivalry between the Sunderland and Coventry fans. And apparently it dates back 30 years no more than that, probably 40 years, because Jimmy, it was when Jimmy Hill was manager and the two sides were playing to avoid the final relegation position and they were all meant to kick off at the same time. But Jimmy found a reason. Apparently there was traffic problems, traffic congestion, for Coventry's match to kick off 20 minutes later. So we were able to keep a look at what was happening to Sunderland. They lost, we played out a draw, and they were relegated. Hey-ho, come on guys, this is at least 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Isn't it about time you forgot? Most of you weren't even born then. Anyway, Sunderland came to Coventry to a ground they hadn't won at in their last 11 matches but now make that 12 but don't get excited folks Coventry didn't win no we played out what was actually quite a boring or it sounded quite boring nil nil draw I mean there was fantastic crowd atmosphere because they're now getting over 25,000 at the CBS but I wouldn't say that either side greatly troubled the opponent's goalkeeper. Meanwhile, Leamington beat St Ives away 1-0. But sadly, Stratford lost to Leighton and Neneaton lost to AFC Sudbury. But at least they avoided another 7-0 drubbing like they had the previous week, which I wrongly said it was actually by Telford. Now, I did say in my defence that I hadn't seen it in print and I'd only heard it on the radio. So I either blame the radio presenter or reckon that there was a hitch in the sound waves between the radio and my ears. Anyway, not Salford, but Telford. Now, I started off writing my script for sport this week. Yes, I do have a script, folks. And it's bank holiday Monday afternoon, and I just found out that the local team, non-league teams were playing. And Leamington entertained Stratford. Bit of rivalry there. But neither side will go away with a particular glow because it was a one-all draw which is better than a loss for both sides.
but it can be a bit hollow. I know Stratford scored first and were 1-0 up at half-time, but then at some stage the breaks equalised to finish 1-1. I've also found out that because of their promotions, Rugby and Coventry Sphinx are now in the same division as Bedworth. So we might be getting some interesting local matches there. In fact, I know there's one on today, but I can't find the result yet. So I'll report on that next week. Now, Coventry Rugby Club had the last one of their so-called pre-season friendlies. But this one was away to Birmingham Mosley who again, we've always had quite a friendly rivalry with. And didn't Coventry do well, unlike England against Fiji, but we won't go there. Coventry came away 69 points to 24 winners. And this was an away match. And now moving on to the wider world that is sport, it's been the World Athletics Championships and Great Britain and Northern Ireland came away equaling their best record for 30 years, totalling two gold, three silver and five bronze. So it's certainly looking good with Paris Olympics next year. We won medals in the men's 100, 400, 800 and 1500 metres and in the women's 800 metres and of course as I mentioned last week at length the heptathlon plus four of the five relays we finished fourth in the other so that shows real depth in our team as well you know we haven't just got one or two stars we have got great depth i particularly like to mention two men firstly ben patterson ben took the bronze in the 800 meters totally unexpected he'd gone into the race the the slowest of the qualifiers and he crossed the line and when he saw the clock he just put his head in his hands and walked around looking totally incredulous. When they interviewed him on the telly the next day, he said he'd had half an hour's sleep that evening. <laughs> mm-hmm. And secondly, Josh Kerr. Josh was well known in the 1500 metre circuit, but he'd always been sort of the bridesmaid and never the bride getting a medal. But he took gold and wasn't he pleased as like well he should do. Now a particular quote I liked last night when they got two field events happening at the same time. The men's javelin and the women's high jump. Having focused on the women's high jump they then switched to the men's javelin and they said... Mm, the men are throwing the up from the other end. 
towards the high jumpers. Well, I assure you, if I thought I got one of those flaming six-foot-long spears coming towards me at a high velocity, I would do a very high jump. Now, the US Open Tennis has just started, as in started today, and goes on for the next two weeks. It is covered on BBC Radio and the website. So we're talking about Radio 5 and Radio 5 Live and also Sky Sports. But I'll give you a word of warning. The evening session starts at midnight our time because of the time difference. So it's going to be good for any of you sort of night owls or can't sleepers. So, who are the Brits who are taking part and have qualified from the main one? Firstly, a huge congratulations to Lily Miyazaki, the British number seven, who has made it into the final draw. Now, Cameron Norrie and Dan Evans are the only two seeds, with Andy Murray missing out by three places. Oh dear. Also joining in the men's, we have Jack Draper and Liam Brady. Meanwhile, in the women's, we have Katie Bolter, Jodie Burridge, and the aforementioned Lily. And finally, well, I think this is funny, going back to the athletics. Now, the athletics were held in Budapest, and Budapest has some massive islands in the middle of the Danube, and I'm talking about several miles large. And the main warm-up track was on one of these said islands with the athletics on the mainland. So between the two, they had golf carts. Well, it was called a buggy, but basically a golf cart, motorised jobby. It was all going so well until before the men's 100 metres when, and I don't know how this happened, but two of these buggies actually crashed. And it actually caused one of the athletes injury insofar as he had to be, well, no, he didn't have to be, but he was allowed to run in the final, although he hadn't run in the semi-final. But I thought the funniest thing was on day one when the little heptathletes, or shall we say not necessarily small, but petite, thin, heptathletes were coming over, easily fitting in the buggy. But then the next buggy brought the men's shot putters. And shall we just say they looked very cosy. And that has been your sport. Bye, have a great week. Is Sarah managing to keep the attention of a few of you who might have fast-forwarded to the next feature? Let us know your thoughts on her reports in Postbag. 
This is Postbank. Join in the discussion. Hi there. Welcome to your postbag. This is your spot on Outlook that you have the responsibility for filling up. To pinch a question from local radio that I heard just after 5.30am one morning, tell us about any spontaneous things that you've done. Graham Well is concerned about changes in BBC CWR and questions presenters who tell you that they are just keeping the seat warm for the regular presenter when they are not coming back to that spot any time soon. Yes, um, I do know now that Paul Franks, the drive-time presenter on WM, is retired. In fact, I heard his last programme a week or two back, which is why they've chosen Trisha Judu to uh, do the new uh, drive-time programme. At the moment, actually, she only works on CWR Monday to Thursday. That's when she's working at all. She seems to have more days off than more day, than she does on. <laughs> on a Friday, she's now doing the drive time program on WM. Whether this is to get WM listeners used to her, I don't know. So I got rather irritated the first Friday that this was happening to hear a third-rate presenter on CWR, whose name escapes me, claiming that they were standing in for Trissa Dudu. How can they stand in for a presenter who doesn't work on the station on a Friday? So I'm afraid I couldn't resist ringing the station. I knew if I rung the uh, studio number, <laughs> I would get through to the producer. And I had a bit of a go. So she said, oh, yeah, well, of course, they'll, they'll be going out on both stations soon. I said, yes, I know that. But when that happens, it's a whole new ball game. At the moment, Trissa Dudu does not work on CWR on a Friday, so the presenter can't claim that they're standing in for her. I can't remember how the conversation ended, but uh, I've not heard a presenter say that they're standing in for her on a Friday since then. So I think the point must have got home. Because the BBC will say that the stations are not merging. They're merely sharing content. And they will still put out local news bulletins up to 7 o'clock in the evening. And if you ring one of these shared programs, wherever it comes from, you'll ring your local radio station phone number, 0800 7565 200 in the case of CWR, as you do now if you ring the regional program between 2 and 1 o'clock in the morning. It's those regional programs, late evening, I can't understand what they're going to do. They're going to be national, they say. I suspect they will come from London. And do people listen to a local radio station to hear a national program? Uh, I thought you might as well listen to Radio 2, if that's what you wanted. Anyway, I've said enough on the issue. Well, if you're thinking about changing radio stations, you'll find some really interesting programs on Radio 4. They actually play the National Anthem at 1am. Which of the radio station does that? And then it goes over to BBC World Service. And if you wake up in the small hours of the morning and switch on the radio for 10 minutes, you may hear stories that you've never heard before. Like the one I heard. 
the theft and recovery by the FBI of Dorothy's red shoes from the Wizard of Oz. But you like listening to music on the radio, Graham. So name the artists and the record that this introduction comes from. To start Julia's quiz. How much does that cost? Julia was a special guest speaker of the Monday Club, talking about her favourite subject, money. There were lots of people at the Monday Club, and this quiz is to test whether they were concentrating. But if you are not a member of the Monday Club, you are invited to have a go too. Here are the questions. 1. There are bumps on the notes to help visually impaired people. Who knows where they are? Do you know? Tell us. Number 2. Does anybody know where the notes are made? 3. What material are they made from? 4. Why are they made from that material? 5. Some of the coins are milled around the edge. 5p, 10p, 1 pound and 2 pound, and the others are smoothed. Why are they milled? 6. How many sides has a one-pound coin got? My friend John says two, heads and tails, but he's wrong. And number 7. What year did the old one-pound coin stop being produced? I didn't think they stopped it. There you are. The new King's Notes are coming out in the middle of 2024. I hope you all enjoyed the quiz. Money, money, money Must be funny In a rich man's world Money, money, money Always sunny In a rich man's world Aha! All the things I could do If I had a little money It's a rich man's world Julie says I enjoy giving my talk my friend John said he'd give a new £50 note to the winner, but he hasn't got one. Good luck, Julia. Thank you, Julia, and congratulations on your talk. As I said before recently, please support Julia and have a go at her quiz. It could help other listeners recognising money. Julia tries very hard to entertain you, at her own time and expense in a private English-stroke computer classes with her friend John. And Edwina benefits from John and his fellow helpers in the computer suite and the resource centre. Not only is she blind and profoundly deaf, she has a painful condition with a hand, which means she can no longer write or type letters at the resource centre in the one-to-one -one computer sessions. So a volunteer now types them for her as she is desperate 
to keep lines of communication open, which she also does by speaking to you each week with her wonderful powers of expression, which I hope you appreciate. Here he is to talk about Carpal Tunnel Syndrome. Hi everybody, I'm just going to say a piece about Carpal Tunnel. That is a very painful condition which is caused by a trapped nerve in the wrist. I hope and pray that you haven't suffered it, but if you have or are, I have a little tip which helps. You do get a very, very numb feeling in the fingers in particular is where it's a pain. If you come in after going out and you've got really painful and numb fingers and hand, have a hot water bottle. Wrap the hot water bottle in a towel or in a tea towel because it'll be very hot and put your hand on it for comfort. As the hot water bottle cools, then you can actually put your hand inside under the towel or tea towel actually on the hot water bottle and you've got the heat all over the top as well. It does bring comfort to you. So take care. I hope you haven't got it, but if you have, I hope your suffering will soon be over. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much, Edwina, and thank you to Janet for saying how much you like my reports when I come into the Monday Club. The last one was the outing I went on by myself with Harry Shaw to the Berry and the East Lancashire Railway. I had lovely company the whole day, and I've met people, including those who have recently lost their partners, uh, who have given me similar experiences of going away by themselves, although you must weigh up how much guiding you need. So please give your fellow listeners your experiences of going away by yourself. Let us know if you've been to the World Blind Games. I've been reporting on events, as you all hear, and met some very inspiring people. So don't be put off by the word sport. And the same applies to Sarah's excellent and descriptive sport spot each week. Finally, Tina tells you how she celebrated her recent birthday. Right, we had, we had a lovely time on, on Wednesday, me and Edward. It was my birthday on Wednesday, and it was his yesterday. We went to the pub for a meal. Sophie and the kids were there. We had a lovely time with the kids were playing in the playground. Uh, it was the uh, shepherd and shepherdess, that's where my niece works. That's where the playground of the kids. And we just had a lovely time. Thank you, Tina, for sharing that with us and many happy returns of the day. Tina, who goes to the craft group, has made some lovely cards for myself and Sheila over the years, and I've kept them. 
Thank you very much for your messages this week. Please let's hear from you next time. I can't do it without you. Bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Your Postbag for this week with Dave. Continuing our theme of the Charter House, which Margaret started last week, she now starts recounting memories of the post-war years. With the death of Colonel William Wiley in the summer of 1940, Charter House finally passed from private home into public asset, yet fulfilling its huge potential has not been easy. Memory 1. Brendan Noon Brenda Noon was one year old when in 1927 her father secured a job as Colonel Wiley's chauffeur and the family moved into a cottage on the Charter House estate. The job came with further responsibility, caring for some of the Wiley family dogs, wire-haired fox terriers kept for showing, and the residents of a boarding kennels housed in the same complex of buildings close to the house. I had a lovely childhood playing in the grounds, recalled Brenda. On the front lawn of the main house we used to have fates and I used to come over with my father and it helped put the electric lights all over the place. As a chauffeur, Brenda's father was on call all the time and Colonel Wiley had a telephone installed in their house so that he could be summoned when needed. He also bought him a small rover car to run about in, later bequeathed to the family in the Colonel's will. I didn't know Colonel Wiley very well, though I remember him giving me a present, a coronation mug in 1936. It had a lovely coronation coach on it, all gold. The tranquility of Brenda's happy charter house childhood was not to last. In October 1940, In one of the early air raids of the war, the family cottage had its roof badly damaged, forcing them to sleep in their Anderson shelter for three weeks. On November the 14th, using petrol coupons which had arrived that day, Brenda's father took the family in the rover to see friends living near Rugby, who'd offered a good night's sleep in a proper bed. When they returned the next morning, the cottage had had all its windows and doors blown out and the kennels had suffered bomb damage, which had injured and killed several of the dogs. It was clear that their charter house days had come to an end. Colonel Wiley himself had died in August 1940, so the family's future lay elsewhere. After two months with relatives in Derbyshire, they began a new life in another part of Coventry. Memory 2. Doris Turner. The year was 1938 and Doris Turner at the age of just 10 was already a keen member of a school debating team in Coventry. After securing second place in a regional debating competition, the four-strong team was invited to spend the day with Colonel Wiley at Charter House. I can always remember the garden was terrific, Doris recalled years later. 
It was a time when there was fruit on the trees, and he said, take any amount of food, which was lovely. The following year, the team repeated their success, and another trip to Charterhouse followed, this time to the Colonel's inner sanctum, his trophy room. All I can remember is going in, and he'd got a long table, and along this table were all of these trophies, cups and things like that, animal heads on the wall. That's what impressed me most. He made us so very welcome, and then he said he wanted to have a photograph taken with the four of us. He was nice, a really nice gentleman. Margaret will have more memories next time. Sue last week introduced you to Arthur Parkinson and his passion for poultry, and now completes the story of how that passion helped him through his childhood depression and the separation of his parents. What captivated me was the way Debo kept happy chickens on such a beautiful and public scale. She had a fabulous sense of fun with her hens and a magical way of getting people to connect with them. She'd take her city guests with her to feed the game larder flock and collect the eggs, a scene coined by her grandchildren as the granny show. Debo offered home-laid eggs as gifts for her friends. Artist Lucian Freud was so taken with his clutches that he painted them. But Margaret Thatcher gave them such a look of horrified distrust that Debo feared they would be thrown out of the window once the PM's car was out of sight. The most famous of the Duchess's hens were the ginger buff cushions with their feathered trousers. They weren't phased by visiting crowds and would tend to stay on the mowed lawns. The cochins behaved so well in the garden that Debo attempted to use them and some Gloucestershire old spot piglets as floral replacements for a big dinner party one night in the great family dining room. Neat little perspex coops specially made for the occasion were arranged down the table. A trusted cockerel and his hens cooed amongst themselves as if they were in a poultry show. There were freshly hatched chickens in china baskets. At first the piglets slept, nested on a straw-bedded platter, but then awoke and began to squeal, at which point Debo calmly rang a buzzer and her beloved farmyard team, all dressed in royal red overalls, swiftly appeared to remove their charges. The week my parents separated, when I was eleven, Mum took me to Chatsworth. Unbeknownst to me, we would be meeting Debo on this visit for the first time as a surprise arranged through Mum writing to Helen Marchant, her grace's secretary. Through the drizzle, a Land Rover appeared. To come, quick, quick! There, in the driving seat, was Debo. As the rain eased, we ventured out. Debo with her famous big wicker basket on her arm for collecting eggs. She asked if I could hold her umbrella while she unlocked the dusty double doors of the game larder. We collected the eggs together, and as we said goodbye later, my most poignant memory was of Debo warmly taking my mum's hands and saying, Oh, you are so cold, as she gave her some eggs. I think she sensed mum was going through a tough time. 
When I left primary school, Debo sent me a copy of a photographic book, Extraordinary Chickens, as a present, and it's one of my greatest treasures. You'll turn into one of them bloody chickens, you will, was my childhood's echoing script. But as I grew up, I wanted to be in my own little horizon of hens. By making my hens content, I found in life a source of comfort that comes from nurturing and knowing beings other than myself. The structure and rituals of caring for my hens helped immensely with my head when I was first ambushed by depression as a child, as it does now. Hens offer companionship without demanding attention. They make me feel better and then I can be a better person, not just to my birds, but to the people that matter to me too. After Debo became the Dowager Duchess of Devonshire in 2004, she moved out of the big house and into the old vicarage at Edensor, a village on the estate. She continued to keep hens in her garden there, a more manageable flock of several dozen. Journalists who came to interview her would ask the usual questions about the various dramas of the other Mitford sisters and the time she'd had tea with Adolf Hitler on a trip to Munich just before the Second World War. Then they'd ask about her passion for chickens, and her answers would perk up in delight. With fewer hens, Debo had fewer eggs, but she still took any surplus to sell in the Chatsworth farm shop where they were placed in beautiful glazed china bowls and labelled eggs from the dowager duchess's flock. They sold out, of course, as soon as the bowl was filled. Hens were there with Debo at the very end. When she died at the age of 94 in 2014, her wicker coffin was adorned not just with flowers. Within the foliage was a little nest made of wheat, that held a clutch of her hen's eggs at its heart. Many of our listeners I know have guide dogs and appreciate what great companions and invaluable helpers they are, so can easily relate to author Leslie Pierce, who took the plunge and had a new puppy at the age of 78. This is from the Daily Express and it's read by Bill. My Ruby King Charles Cavalier Stan had been my companion dearest friend for 12 years. Without him, I think I would have gone loopy during lockdown. Alongside my writing, I was renovating a one-bedroom ground-floor apartment further along the road and doing up the neglected garden. My five-bedroom house on the Devon Riviera would soon be sold. At 76, I felt it was sensible to downsize. The big garden at the new address would be lovely for Stan, and a great project for me to continue working on. But just two weeks after we'd moved into the apartment at the end of 2021, instead of him relishing no stairs and lovely soft grass, my beloved boy was suddenly weakening, his eyes losing their sparkle. I knew he was trying to tell me, my time is up. We all know the greatest kindness you can give an animal when that happens is to let them go. You still want to scream, no, don't leave me. But last two weeks, I let him sleep in my bed, 
something I said I'd never do with a dog. I tried to tempt him to eat with chicken and other treats. I even prayed for a reprieve. It was no good. And eventually, I knew I had to take him for that last trip to the vets. Fortunately, he loved going there, and his favourite vet did the deed. At that point, I wished I could have gone too. Alone, my children and grandchildren in Bristol and London, I'd never felt more cut adrift, and the silence was scary. No more morning walks or chatting to other dog owners. Without Stan, there was no structure to my day. Amid the nagging fear of growing more unfit without daily exercise, I couldn't even seem to write anymore. I'd sit at my desk and fall asleep, though I watched TV endlessly, completely mindless stuff, and thought, this is it for me now. I'm the kind of old person I had vowed not to be. I needed and longed for a dog. Everyone kept saying no. I was wobbly on my feet. I didn't need the responsibility or the mess. And I was free to go anywhere. I fancied at a moment's notice. It was all kindly meant, of course, but I hate sensible advice and was aware I didn't understand the depth of my inner sadness. Then, back in April, I got tickets for a girlfriend and I to see Cabaret in London. Before the show, we went to a bar on the Embankment Gardens, and quite by chance, there was a couple on the table next to us with a black and tan cavalier. She was called Frida, and in the same way Dan made friends, she jumped onto my lap. Lucy, her owner, and I chatted, and she told me she'd got Frida from a wonderful breeder in Wales. She said she would email me details, and she did. Although scared of commitment, I couldn't help myself. I had to write to the breeder, Angela. I was half hoping she hadn't got a litter, wouldn't let an old bird like me have a puppy anyway. But she had puppies, and she sensed that I would be a careful owner. She was the kind of breeder I like. Certainly she cared more for their well-being than wealth. I drove up to see the pups. Such a long way, especially to return the same day. There was white socks, one Angela had earmarked for me. He also had a white flash on the top of his head. He came to me with all the enthusiasm a puppy can give. I breathed in that puppy smell deeply and fell in love, there and then. I knew my year and a half of being dogless was coming to an end. Angela only lets pups go at twelve weeks when fully inoculated. So I had three more weeks to wait, and it seemed like forever. I bought a travelling crate, a new bed, and some toys. I couldn't think of anything else. And I came up with his name, Arnie. Finally, I was there at the gate, all the puppies striving to greet me. 
Morning, home back. White flash on his head nearly gone. His white socks as bright as ever. Angela and I walked for an hour. We both felt we'd found a real friend. He had crocheted Barney his own blankets to take away. A masterpiece in greens and blues to suit his red coat. Another indication of her love and dedication to her pups. He didn't mind being in the little hutch alone all the way home. And when I got him out, he hadn't made any mess at all. He peed on my lawn, looked up at me with an expression that said, I like this place. Of course, I'd forgotten how a puppy, like a new baby, takes over your home and your life. Nothing is sacred. Do the edge of the rug in the sitting room while mum is busy. Keep the strip she'd put down to anchor it to the floor to hide the evidence. I hadn't had it long, and it was expensive. I squealed in horror when I saw all the loose threads. There is a comic chicken ornament by the fire that I hadn't thought to move. He broke that and sat there calmly playing with all the pieces. Arnie pulls out any throws tucked tidily away and has bitten pom-poms off a cushion, not to mention nibbling my newest sandals, knobs on a chest of drawers, old books I treasure, and he decimates any mail left on the doorstep. Day three, I was tearing my hair out as he moved from one destruction area to another. Amazingly, he hasn't had any accidents indoors. He whines when the door isn't open. Of course, I do go out with him at regular intervals to encourage him. I'm tired all the time because I have to be vigilant all day. Even with all of that, I'm not sorry I've got him. I tell myself, in six months, I'll have forgotten all the bad stuff. I read that a puppy should be exposed to several things before 16 weeks. Traffic, noisy machinery, including vacuum cleaners, high-vis jackets, helmets, skateboards, and so on. He'd only been with me a day when men arrived to trim my hedges, but that got several scary things ticked off all at once. It helped that the men all played with him too. The next day, I put a little harness on him and set out for a brief walk. He didn't like the cars going by. He liked the people who stopped to pet him. It took me ages to go a hundred yards. He was clearly born to be a writer's dog. The moment I sit down at my desk, he goes into his little hutch and snoozes. I made the mistake of letting him come onto my bed on the first morning he was here. He jumped on my head, licked my ears vigorously, and didn't seem to understand. The plan had been for him to settle down, for a snuggle. I can hardly wait till he's ready to walk to the beach, let him off the lead, and see him scamper around with bigger dogs. Someone asked me if it wasn't a bit foolish to get a puppy that might outlive me. That's quite likely. But I have three dog-loving daughters, and I know if the worst happens, he will be scooped up by one of them. I should start a family row about which one takes him. But no matter how much time I have left with Barney, 
I know every moment will be filled with joy. Aren't dogs wonderful and faithful companions? You may recall a series we ran a few years ago, which we called Hurdy Gurdy Days, which was a portrait of life in Coventry at the beginning of the 20th century, written by Lynn Dorothy Hockton and Beatrice Mary Callow. It was such an interesting glimpse at our recent history that we thought it worth repeating. So this week, we start with part one and the introduction, read by Alan. This extract is taken from a series of books, written and published by the Women's Research Group, formed in 1998 after a series of lectures on women's history at Coventry University. A number of them were so concerned by the lack of information relating to local women that they wanted to discover more about them. Just who were these women, commemorated only in the name of a road or a block of flats? Their first book, Redressing the Balance, published in 1999, consists of a number of profiles of women who have made a contribution to life in Coventry in however small a way. Hurdy-Gurdy Days deals with poverty in Coventry at the beginning of the 20th century and how women dealt with its effects. The group continues to record and report on the lives of Coventry women. This is the story of Grace Charlton, a little girl who lived in Coventry in the early part of the 20th century. It tells of the poverty and hardship endured by many of the working-class people in those days. Grace Charlton was born before the beginning of the century in Much Park Street, a street full of pubs and courts. She was the eldest child of one of the very poor families living in Coventry at that time. The poor squalid little houses we lived in looked as if they had grown there, but hundreds of years ago there was a park around there, hence the name of our street, there was also Little Park Street and Parkside. In Little Park Street there were courts like ours and some very old buildings. There was a very large house standing back behind some iron railings, and we often wondered who lived there. The town was full of hovels like ours, owned by people with money to invest, not caring about anything except making money. We paid three and sixpence per week, and our grandparents had lived there all their lives, having been born there. Nothing had ever been done in the nature of repairs as far as back as they could remember, so it was a good investment, fourteen houses at three and six a week. There was only one door to each of the houses in the court, no back door, two small windows at the front, one upstairs and one downstairs. The door of the next house almost touched, and this was repeated all the way up the yard. There was no privacy even inside the houses, as the neighbours could hear the arguments and rows, and there were plenty of these, and fights, caused by the drink. Inside the front door was a room about twelve foot by ten foot, where absolutely everything had to be done. Halfway up the wall was a sort of matchboard panelling, painted dark brown, and above that was a faded wallpaper, where it hadn't peeled, of course, through the damp. The washing-up had to be done on the deal top table in an enamel bowl with a tin tray to drain the crocks, as there was no sink or draining board. There was an old-fashioned fireplace with hobs on each side and an oven on one side, which took up the whole of one wall of the room. All the cooking and hot water for washing clothes had to be done on this fire, the water for washing clothes being heated in a huge iron pot on a sort of grid across the fire. There was always a roaring fire, and in summer the heat was unbearable. 
There were four lavatories, or closets as they were called, to the fourteen houses in the court. These were right at the top of the yard, in what was called the backyard. They were earth closets, and were emptied by the night men. A row of dustbins, one to each house, had to be emptied too. The slops went down the one and only drain by the water in the middle of the yard, which served everybody. When it was fine, all the children who lived in the court used to play at the backyard amongst the dustbins and closets and under the lines of washing. There was always somebody's washing hanging out, as the women had nowhere to hang it and had to take turns for the lines. A mangle with huge rollers and a big wheel to turn them stood by the tap. It had stood there so long that nobody seemed to know to whom it belonged. Our grand said it belonged to her, but everybody used it in turn. It had to be screwed down tightly by means of a turn screw at the top. This brought the rollers together, but it had stood outside in all weathers so long it used to creak and groan. The rollers had a great gap between them through years of wear and tear. When it rained or snowed, the women used to have to go out and mangle with a sack around their shoulders and over their heads. Sometimes they wore their husband's cloth cap. That is if he didn't happen to be wearing it. The hot water from the huge iron pot on the fire was emptied into a dolly tub, usually a wooden one with metal hoops around it, obtained from the brewery over the wall. The dolly had three short handles attached to the top of the spindle, and at the bottom was a wooden contraption with a metal strip around it. It was our grand's dolly, really, and it was very old-fashioned. The clothes were put into the tub and bumped up and down by the dolly, and then lifted up by a stick to be put through the mangle rollers. There was a draining board in front of the rollers with an opening for the water to go through, and at the back of the mangle an old sink bath would be placed with clean water in it for rinsing. The clothes went through the rollers with the dirty water dropping back into the dolly tub at the front. Then they had to be mangled backwards from the clean water to the sink bath, taking care not to let them fall into the tub again. The draining board could be tilted at an angle to prevent this from happening. They were then transferred to a wicker cloth basket and taken up to the backyard to dry, if possible, with children playing underneath them and neighbours going backwards and forwards to the dustbins and closets. If it was a wet day, the clothes were festooned across the living room on lines, sheets, and everywhere else to dry by the fire, the water dripping onto the table and the floor. There always seemed to be washing about. When it was dry, it had to be ironed by means of a flat iron fixed to a sort of grid in front of the fire, which hooked onto the bars. It used to get very hot, and I have seen our mum spit on it to test the heat. The spit would sizzle and run off. Two irons were used, one after the other. An old piece of blanket was put on top of the table to iron on, and a two-way heavy metal ring for an iron stand. We used to make the iron holders for ma'am for Christmas presents. Sometimes the clothes would stay on the lines in the living room until Thursday or Friday. Then the whole business of washing would start again on Monday. No wonder people colds and died of TB. And we will be continuing Hurdy-Gurdy as a series over the coming weeks. Recently we told you about the World Blind Games, which was to be taking place mostly in Birmingham. And of course Dave went along to bring us this report, starting this week and completing next. Hello there. Welcome to the World Blind Games. 
International Blind Sports Association 2023 and have arrived at the University Station Birmingham and it says here this station is for archery, blind football, chess and judo. Hello, well I'm at Birmingham University, I'm speaking to Ian at the moment, so you're a volunteer here for, for the games? Yes, I'm one of uh, about 400 people uh, who are volunteering their time over the two weeks of the games. And so, so what's happening? Can you give, give us a picture of what's going on sure. over the next week or two? Sure, so the, the, it's uh, centres here at Birmingham University, uh, we've already had four days of blind football, uh, men's and women's football yeah. uh, and tonight is the opening ceremony um, and the games then start for real uh, from tomorrow through to for the next nine days. Well, I'm standing near the pitch where some uh, blind people are playing football and the goalkeeper's just throwing the ball out and they're tackling each other quite aggressively. It's, it's uh, very exciting actually. This is, um, so they were meant, this is Spain and they were meant to be playing Mali, but Mali haven't um, got their visas sorted. Well, I'm seated on the balcony of the Symphony Hall. It's a beautiful building with about three tiers and the stalls. And there's hundreds of people down below. It's absolutely beautiful. I'm speaking to Hamani. Can you describe what's going on, please? Uh, and about blind football. I can try my absolute best. So currently, we are at the IBSA World Games. It's the grand day opening today, so the open yeah. ceremony is tonight. This is the World Cup for blind football. Fantastic. Yeah, it's incredible. Honestly, it's such a, a, a different form of football. It's yeah. physical. Um, obviously, these people ca are categorised into their levels. Yeah. So there are three different levels yeah. B1 yeah. B2 and B3 yeah. B1 is completely no sight and yeah. obviously B2 and B3 categorised yeah. on the different levels yeah. so the men's competition as we've got going on here this is just a training session yeah. um, they are all B1 yeah. Whereas the women's competition, because it is a brand new league and a brand yeah. new setup, it c contains all three categories. Okay, but, but uh, unless I'd been told that they are blind, I, I, I wouldn't have known because they were going for the ball and oh <laughs> my, well, yes. passing it around. Yes, yeah, so as you can, you might, you can hear the ball. Uh, oh, there is a bell in the ball, is there? Yes, there is a noise in the ball, which means they can use their uh, echolocation to find it, and also there are boards surrounding the sidelines so yes. that they can use that as a rebound board so that yeah. there is no sideline yeah. but there are backlines and do you know what's even more impressive what's that that the goalkeepers are fully sighted so they yeah. can see everything yes and obviously scoring past a fully sighted person is incredible just the way that they put the ball in the back of the net is outstanding yeah. These people playing have got no sight. Yes, they have the no sight. The way they're running around and going yeah. for the ball. So they have special commands as well. So you must shout voy, which is I go in Spanish. Yeah. Um, and that is to tell people that they are going in for a tackle. Wow, that's that, that a magnificent shot at goal then. 
Yeah, and yeah. then, so the person stood behind the goal is a goal guide, yeah. so he is shouting at the players, go left, go right, back up, and yeah. when to shoot, yeah. he is commanding when they shoot that ball, and yeah. then they use where he is based yeah. to go, to try and aim for the goal. Yeah. And um, when they're setting up like penalties and free kicks, they're tapping the side of the goal so that they can get an image, a, a mental image of where the goal is. Right, so this is what the ball sounds like. So this is the sound that the, player, the players are actually listening for. So that is the sound it makes when they kick it, it bounces or anything. Oh, and here comes another one, flying straight at us. But um, <laughs> that's, that's what the players are listening for. Thank you. Well, keepers just thrown the ball out, and here we go. Here's the players coming in for goal. Yes, it's the goal. Hey, I'm speaking to volunteer teamers. So, what, what's the kind of competition? What, what's the atmosphere like here? It's really friendly. Everybody's very happy and just pleased to be taking part in these games. And in the evening, I went to the opening ceremony of the games at the Symphony Hall, Birmingham. Not only will Dave complete his report next week, but in the following weeks we'll have an interview with Mike Brace about skiing as a blind person and also a judo competition. Now, before we go, Nigel's got the answers to the small quiz he set you last week. And uh, now for the answers of last week's quiz. Right, you'll remember that the first question was, in verse, which bells said you owe me five farthings? Well, the answer to that is St. Martin's. So, did you remember who Thomas Wood was best known as? Yes? Did you? Well, he was actually Tom Jones. And who wrote the novel My Family and Other Animals? That, of course, was Gerald Durrell, or Durrell, which way we pronounce it. Now, technically, how many guns in a bushel? It's the same as pints uh, in a gallon. That's eight, eight guns in a bushel. And then we asked, in America, what's the traditional Thanksgiving Day dessert? Well, it's pumpkin pie, of course. Now, Henry VIII had a lot of wives. Henry VIII had uh, some of them executed as well. But how many of those were executed? Well, it was just two. There's the old uh, little verse says, Divorced, beheaded, died. Divorced, beheaded, survived. And then Josh Gifford. Who's he associated with, or rather, with which sport is he associated uh, did you get that one right? It's horse racing. If you're a hydrophobia, what are you frightened of? You're frightened of water. Sounds like what all children suffer from. Then we asked you, uh, in the 1980s, who had a number one with I should be so lucky? That was Kylie Minogue, of course. And the only English anagram of ochre, O-C-H-R-E, and that is chore, C-H-O-R-E. And finally, what types of ape live on the Rock of Gibraltar? Well, they, of course, are Barbary apes. 
So how did you get on? No prizes, I'm afraid, but uh, just satisfactory if you've got all those right. Well done. There'll be another quiz sometime in the near future. How did you do? Let us know in postbag, not only about the quiz, but anything else on Outlook, or any tips or queries you may have. So that's the end of this week's edition. So from the team and me, Pete Walters, it's goodbye. Till next week.